0: Well, good morning, Church. Good morning, and uh, thank you, Sarah, for reading for us. And just a word about family focus. You've probably noticed that we're making a little bit of a change in the way we do things on Sunday mornings. So we're trying to keep the family focus slot for people who want to testify to what God is doing in their lives at the moment. It's a great encouragement when we hear it, and I'm sure you were encouraged, as I was, by what Sarah had to say to us. If you would like to testify at some point uh, in the future in Family Focus, please speak to one of the ministry team and we'll arrange it. But for now please have John chapter 2 open in front of you and also the outline which I think you will find helpful and I will ask for God's help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you for the privilege of opening your word And holding it in our hands. And we pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands, so that as we read about you in the pages of Scripture, our hearts may be warmed with a renewed awareness of your love, our minds may be filled with your truth, and our lives may be equipped to serve and glorify your name. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, when we began our series in the Gospel of John, I, of course, had no idea that I would be speaking on this particular text in the very same week that our younger daughter announced her engagement. And uh, I'm sure you can imagine that the account of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding has caught my interest in an entirely fresh way. Now, of course, it's an extremely well-known story. Um, Everyone who's ever been to a wedding has heard of it, because, of course, it is in the prayer book, Liturgy for Marriage. You can look it up afterwards. But what does it actually mean? Well, our text this morning is the phrase in verse 11, where John says that in this sign, Jesus revealed his glory. If somebody asks you this week, well, what is the Gospel of John all about? What is its message? Uh, I want you to reply that the Gospel of John is all about the glory of Jesus. So in chapter 1 and verse 14, which we looked at together a fortnight ago, John says, we have seen his glory. And John's purpose in writing this book is to show the glory of Jesus Christ in such a way that people believe in him as their Lord and Saviour. And in our passage this morning, John begins to show Christ's glory. In verse 11, he says that this was the first of his miraculous signs, And you may remember when we began our series, we learned that there are seven signs in the first part of the book, which is why the first half of the Gospel is called the Book of Signs. And the second part of the Gospel is known as the Book of Glory. But this is the first of the seven signs. And John's explanation in verse 11 is that in this sign... Jesus revealed his glory. And Jesus revealed his glory so clearly that his disciples put their faith in him. They were there. They saw and heard everything. And in this event, they could see his glory. And the result was they believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. So... What can we learn about the glory of Jesus from the passage before us? I want us to look at five things. The first thing to say about the glory of Jesus is that it is surprising. Now you see, when you hear the word glory, uh, or the phrase, the glory of God, what do you think of? Uh, I suppose some of us might think of the angel who appeared to the shepherds when the Lord Jesus was born. Because Luke says in his Gospel, doesn't he, that the glory of the Lord shone around them. Or perhaps you might think of the temple in Jerusalem and the glory that was hidden behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. Or perhaps your mind goes all the way back to Mount Sinai and that dramatic moment when Moses received the law from God. Or what about the Mount of Transfiguration, when the disciples, you remember, uh, saw Elijah and Moses appearing in glorious splendour, says Luke, and talking with the Lord Jesus. I think we all recognise those events as appropriate occasions for the glory of God to be revealed. But... If it were not for this particular passage, I doubt very much whether any of us would have thought of a party as the place where Jesus first revealed his glory. I think it's the last place on earth you would expect to find it, isn't it? A wedding reception in a tiny village. And Cana was a tiny, obscure village. It was so obscure that John's Gospel is the only book in the Bible that even mentions it. So the Lord was at a party. Let's not spiritualize this. And it was a pretty wild party. And we know that because later in the text, the master of the banquet talks about people who've had too much to drink and can't tell the difference between good and bad wine. So, it was a wedding party. Jesus was there as a guest. So, he wasn't one of the VIPs. He wasn't sitting on the top table. He's in the background. And isn't it interesting, I find this absolutely fascinating, that what Jesus is concerned with here isn't the marriage vows. He's not critting the sermon. No, it's the catering. Arrangements. It's as low key as that. We're not even sure how many people knew the miracle had taken place. His mother knew, uh, the disciples knew, uh, but at this point there were probably only five disciples. We know of Andrew and Simon and uh, Philip and Nathaniel, and one more who's not named, but in all probability was John, the author of the Gospel. They knew, and the servants who carried the water, they also knew. But as far as we can tell, nobody else did. But this is where the glory of Christ Jesus was seen for the very first time. And it's telling us, brothers and sisters, something terribly, terribly important. In this world, the glory of Jesus, wonderful as it is, is nevertheless often low-key and understated. It doesn't usually come with thunder and lightning, or with earthquakes, or with mighty experiences. No, no. It's a word of witness. It's a verse of scripture. It's something said by an ordinary pastor in an ordinary sermon. It's a chapter in a Christian book. These can all be doorways into seeing the glory of Christ. And these are avenues in which many of us here this morning have seen his glory. It might perhaps have been your mother reading the Bible to you as a child before you went to bed. Or your father may be leading the family in devotions and in that moment, one evening, the glory of God broke through to you. Or it might be an incident. Um, Something happened. A death, uh, an illness, an accident. There are so many stories, aren't there, of people who became Christians through incidents like that. Perhaps the Holy Spirit puts a thought into someone's mind so that they start thinking seriously about salvation even though they've never really thought about it before. The glory of Jesus Christ is seen in the lives of ordinary, everyday people. There's nothing special or glamorous about them. And I guess that you can probably think of believers that you've known. They've never made the headlines. They've never caused a stir in the world. They weren't unusually gifted or especially talented and yet they were real believers. Jesus was in them and you saw Jesus in them. The glory of Jesus is very wonderful. But friends, in this story we're being alerted to the fact that it is surprising. It doesn't always come in the way that you and I might expect. And it's surprising in another way, and I think we need to note this very carefully, that it's not something we can control. You see, the mother of Jesus is trying to control him here, isn't she? She starts out being just a little bit pushy. Uh, It's very interesting that she's never actually named in the Gospel of John She's always called, quite simply, the mother of Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. But when she discovers the catering crisis, uh, she bustles up to her son and says, They have no more wine. And you might think, mind you, that if there's anyone in this world who might have been able to tell Jesus what to do, it's his mother. And yet she's in for a bit of a surprise because Jesus says to her dear woman why do you involve me
1: that's not actually
0: quite as harsh as it might sound uh, because later on in the gospel there's Jesus dying on the cross and he looks down at his mother and very affectionately he addresses her as dear woman John 19:26 so in our passage Jesus is not being harsh in the way that He addresses her, but please notice he's not calling her mother. And the next phrase is a rebuke. Jesus says, Why do you involve me? Or a better translation would be, What have I to do with you? Now that phrase appears seven times in the Bible. And on each occasion, it's always implying a distance, it's implying a separation. It's always saying, I have nothing in common with you. So to give you just one example, you don't need to look it up, but in Mark chapter 5 and verse 7, and in the ESV translation, the demon talking to Jesus says, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In other words, we've got nothing in common. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's distancing himself from his mother. He's saying, you no longer have a mother's authority over me. We've gone past that. I'm not at your beck and call anymore. I've begun my public ministry. I'm no longer under your authority. This might well have been the first time that Jesus said that. To Mary. How would you mothers have felt at that moment, I wonder? Do you remember the prophecy that Mary heard from old Simeon in the temple at Jerusalem? He said, A sword shall pierce your own soul too. Must have been hard for her, I think. But you see, Jesus says, My time or my hour has not yet come. That has to do with the will of my Father and it's got nothing to do with you. Now I think that's a very sharp reminder to you and me this morning that we cannot control the Lord Jesus. We can't tell him when or where to show his glory. We can't manage him. He's not subject to our ideas or wishes. He's not waiting for our instructions. You and I might have plenty of suggestions as to where it would be good for Jesus to show his glory. We may have people in mind right now that we would love Jesus to show his glory too. And he might, if we ask him. But you see, he'll always do it in his own time and in his own way. We can't insist. We have to learn to wait on him, as Mary does here. One writer puts it like this, Mary approached Jesus as mother and is reproached. She approached him as a believer and her faith is honoured. So it's a surprising glory, that's the first thing. But the second thing we learn about this glory is that it is transforming. Now you may say, well hang on a moment Simon, that's perfectly obvious. He turned water into wine, that's transformation. But friends, there's more to it than that. The key phrase here is in verse 6. John says, nearby stood six stone water jars. Now here it is, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. You see, the Jews uh, washed their arms up to the elbows every time they came into the house in case they'd touched anything belonging to a Gentile and, uh, and had become spiritually unclean. So whenever they got home from the supermarket or the office or wherever it was, they plunged their arms into the water up to the elbows and then they sort of dribbled the water over their hands in a very particular way. And they kept this water in stone jars, not clay jars, because they believed that stone would not be contaminated by uncleanness in the same way that clay might be. Now here's the point. Friends, this is not ordinary water. This is religious water. It's holy water. It's water that's used for spiritual cleansing over and over and over again. And you see, what's happening here is that by this miracle, Jesus is saying that the water of cleansing is no longer necessary because the Messiah has come. So the point is that this miracle is not just about turning ordinary water into wine. No, the focus is the transformation of religious water into wine. Now what on earth is that all about? Well, one of the great promises in the Old Testament was that when Messiah came, there would be an abundance of wine. So, Book of Joel, chapter 3, verse 18, says, In that day, the mountains will drip new wine. Amos, chapter 9, verse 13, says, The days are coming when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. But perhaps most striking of all, and I've given you the reference in the notes, is Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, which says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats. And the finest of wines, the Lord Almighty, will do that. So you see, this wine was a sign of the coming of the Messiah. It was a sign of salvation. It was a sign of God fulfilling his promises to his people. That is what this miracle is all about. And isn't it wonderful that the Lord Jesus chooses to do it not in a palace but in a tiny peasant village where life was extremely hard and monotonous. See, the highlight actually for any Jewish peasant was a wedding. Uh, In those days, weddings lasted for an entire week. I'm jolly glad it isn't that today. And they were absolutely magnificent affairs. Um, And they, they were symbols, in a way, of God's feast with his people. And so here the Lord Jesus is saying that, yes, God has come in saving power to feast with his people. You don't need to turn to it, but Hebrews chapter 10 says that the water of cleansing had to be used over and over and over again because it couldn't actually cleanse you from sin. But now, in this miracle, Jesus is saying that water is no longer needed. It's been transformed into the wine of fulfillment and forgiveness because Messiah has come. Now, this actually is the big theme in the first half of John's Gospel. GWC students take note. The first chapters of this Gospel are all about transformation. They're all about the old being replaced with the new. They're about Judaism turning into Christianity. So, in the rest of chapter 2, we find the old temple being replaced by the risen Lord. Read about it later. In chapter 3, one of the greatest teachers of the Jews, Nicodemus, is told, you have to be born again. In chapter 4, the water from Jacob's well is replaced by living water. And worship on the mountains of Gerizim uh, or Jerusalem is to be replaced by worship in spirit and in truth. It's all being transformed. So in chapter 5, there's a new view of the Sabbath. In chapter 6, there's a new view of the Passover. And so on through chapters 7 to 10. And when you put all of that together, Jesus is saying, in me, religion is being replaced with reality. That is the message of the book. That's the message of the book. This is the glory of Jesus. Jesus is making all things new. Now, my friend, I wonder, as you sit here this morning, are you still trying to satisfy your soul with mere religion with ritual with pitching up to church because that's what you always do on Sunday are you simply trying to be a good person and live a good life well it's never enough it doesn't work it will never satisfy your soul at the wedding they had no wine Friends, can I say that that is the defining characteristic of all mere churchgoers? They've got no wine. Those who just attend but whose hearts haven't been changed, they've got no wine. There's no richness. There's no joy. There's no transformation. There's no new life. They have no wine because you see the wine can only be found in Jesus Christ and it's rich and it's satisfying and it's wonderful one writer puts it like this he says the water of guilt is changed into the wine of forgiveness the water of habitual failure is changed into the wine of victory the water of legalism is transformed into the wine of joyful obedience, transforming glory. It changes the water of religion into wine. And then thirdly, uh, according to this miracle, the glory of Jesus is enriching. Now, it's not especially easy for you and I to appreciate the extent of the crisis in John chapter 2. Mary says they have no more wine and uh, you and I read that and we say, well, was that really such a big deal? bit embarrassing maybe, but a big deal? Well, it was a big deal. You see, the wine was the centre of the feast. Um, In that culture... It was actually the most important thing. Even the rabbis said, without wine there is no joy. And uh, remember, uh, I said that the, the wedding party could last for an entire week. The entire village would have been invited. And although it was only a small village, nobody had ever heard of it, there could well have been 100, 200 people there. And I think, just to sort of Gets you thinking along the right lines. You get some idea of the importance of weddings in that community if you travel to somewhere, maybe one of those villages or towns up the west coast of South Africa, somewhere like Paternoster, for example, where the local population is pretty small. In spite of that, there are four or five smart hotels. you think to yourself, how on earth do those hotels possibly survive? Well, if you ask them, they'll tell you it's the weddings. At certain times of the year, there is a rush of guests for a wedding. Now, that's what's happening here. In those days, it was the bridegroom's responsibility to provide the wedding feast. I think we need to return to that. (laughs) Um, But this bridegroom was obviously a poor man, and he hadn't provided enough wine. And here's something else you need to know. Some of you will appreciate this. That was a shame culture. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like places in parts of the Middle East today, like Japan. To lose face was an absolute catastrophe. Uh, It cast dishonour on your family. And you would be remembered for the rest of your life as the man who disgraced his family by not providing enough wine at the wedding. In fact, it was even worse than that because scholars have recently discovered that it was a legal obligation. You were contractually obliged to provide your neighbours what they had provided for you at their wedding. And if you didn't, they could sue you, take you to court. What do you think of that? So you see, this young bridegroom, he is facing ruin, perhaps a crippling burden for years. So this is not a frivolous need, it is a serious need and Jesus provides for it and he provides for it abundantly. Somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of fine wine.
1: In those days,
0: the Jews used to mix their wine with water, so it was kind of about the strength of Castle Lager today, I suppose. So you're maybe talking of somewhere around 500 gallons of drink. And it would take a lot more than a week to drink 500 gallons of diluted wine. Now there was enough wine here to actually set this young couple up for months. It was a huge present. Financial provision. And it's a marvelously human down to earth revelation of glory. The Son of God comes from heaven to earth and the first sign is meeting the financial and social needs of a pair of young people at a village wedding. Isn't that marvellous? And you see, friends, that is the glory that you are being invited to experience. This is the wonderful Saviour that you're being called to trust. Yes, he grants us salvation, But included in that salvation is meeting our real needs. And this chapter is saying, bring all your needs to Jesus Christ. No matter how mundane or trivial you think they are, no matter how down to earth, no matter how everyday your needs might be, bring them to Jesus no matter how silly or embarrassing you might think they are. If it is a concern to you, bring it to Jesus. Tell him about it. They have no more wine. You can't get more down to earth than that. Lay it before him. What I wonder is troubling you this morning. What what are you worried about this morning? What burdens have you brought with you into this building this morning? Tell the Lord Jesus about it. Whatever it is, bring it to him. He might not answer you in the way that you expect, but he will always answer far more richly and far more abundantly. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in the letter to the Philippians. My God will supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Picture in your mind for a moment that young couple on that first night of the wedding in John chapter 2. Uh, perhaps people have lied, are lying down or they've gone home to sleep to come back the next day for day two. And there they are and they're looking at one another and they're saying, We are just so thankful that Jesus of Nazareth was here today. The glory of Jesus is surprising. It is transforming, it is enriching, and fourthly, it is demanding. Now, this miracle is entirely from the Lord. Uh, It's not due in any way to human effort or human ability The Lord does everything, but he chooses to involve people in the miracle. He didn't need to, but he chose to bring them into partnership with him. I mean, look at the submission and the faith of Mary. I think that she is worthy of our admiration here. I think we can all learn from what Mary does in this miracle. Think about it. She's his mother, but she's not angry with Jesus because he's given her a gentle rebuke. She doesn't sulk. No, she submits meekly and leaves everything in his hands and waits to see what he's going to do. So look at at verse 5 with me. His mother said to the servants... Do whatever he tells you. Now, I discovered something this week that I haven't discovered before. That is the only instruction that Mary, the mother of Jesus, gives in the whole of the Bible. Do whatever he tells you. In other words, she points away from herself to Jesus. I don't know whether people in heaven know what's happening down here on earth. I rather think they don't. But if Mary could know of what is sometimes called Mariolatry, that is to say, the worship of Mary, she would be grieved. She would be grieved. Because her testimony is verse 5. Look to him. Depend entirely on him. I can't help you. Do whatever he tells you. And just think about the faith and the obedience of the servants. Jesus says, fill the jars with water. Now these large stone jars, they were never moved. They were enormously heavy. So they just stayed inside the house. In order to fill them, what you had to do was take a smaller jar and go out to the well, draw the water, carry it back into the house, fill the jar, and repeat the process. They might have had to fetch between 100 and 120 gallons. And we don't know exactly how much, because we don't know how empty the jars were when the process began. But how long would that take? A while, Fill them with water, Jesus says. And then, Jesus says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now, this was the man who was in charge of all of the catering arrangements. And Jesus says to the servants, take him some of this cold water. (laughs) Now, you can imagine, can't you, that he really wouldn't be a very happy bunny To be given some cold water. I mean, they've run out of wine. Wine's what he needs. So the servants you see are risking a ticking off, possibly even a thrashing. They were asked to do something that must have seemed to them to be unreasonable, possibly even foolish. I mean, why would you bring water to the master of the feast? It was risky. But they did it. You see, there was something about Jesus that moved them to obey him. He told them to do it, in spite of how unreasonable and how risky it seemed. And you see, friends, Jesus makes the same demands of you and me today, in order that his glory might be seen in the world... Jesus often asks you and I to move outside our comfort zones to do things we've perhaps never done before to do things that involve real personal risk they might seem to us initially as unreasonable, um, fantastic, unreal what a crazy thing to do but you see they did it They took the water and it was wine. It was wine. Now, what does that mean for your life individually, for us as a church? What is Jesus asking us to do that moves us out of our comfort zones, that seems this morning unreasonable and even frightens us? You know, we can see the hazards, we can see the risks. The glory of Jesus, my friends, is demanding. I love this quote from one commentator. He says, Listen to this. Do whatever he tells you is the secret of miracle working. Let me repeat that. Do whatever he tells you is the secret of miracle working. Can I say, perhaps we don't see miracles as often as we would like because we don't have the faith to obey. But God, you see, uses those who are willing to be fools for Christ in order to show his glory. Are you willing to be a fool for Christ? And then lastly, but of course most importantly, The glory of Christ is convincing. Well, that's verse 11, isn't it? His disciples put their faith in him. That was the consequence. His disciples believed in him. Now, think about that. Think about it. You see, that wasn't the first time they had believed in him. They must have believed in him before, or they wouldn't have been his disciples, would they? But now, you see, more deeply, more profoundly, more wholeheartedly, they believed in him because they'd seen his glory. Some uh, liberal commentators that we don't need to bother with have said that there's nothing intrinsically improbable about this miracle. Uh, God turns water into wine all the time. It just takes six or seven months and he uses the mechanism of grapes. But he's still turning water into wine today, they say. What nonsense. Here, it happens instantly. There are no grapes, and he's not physically involved. He doesn't touch it. He stays apart. He stands at a distance. The servants, you'll notice, pay attention to the detail, the servants fill the jars up to the brim so there was no trickery you know there was no wine skin hidden in the the top of the jars no they're filled up to the brim with water there's nothing but water in these jars and you see the servants then take the water to a completely unbiased neutral witness the master of the banquet and he tasted it Now, read the text carefully. He didn't know where it had come from. He had no idea what was going on. He probably didn't know who Jesus was or even that he was there at all. But you see, where wine is concerned, this man was an expert. He was the John Platter of Cana. And his verdict is, you've saved the best wine till now. And the disciples are watching. We don't know what they said to each other, but it would have probably been something like this. He's changed water into wine. That's what we read about in the Old Testament. He must be the creator. This must be God. And remember, will you, what John says in chapter 20, that he's recorded these miraculous signs that you may believe two things. That Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. That Jesus is the Son of God. And the disciples are filled with amazement and wonder and worship. And they put their faith in him. Now can I ask you, are you convinced of the glory of Jesus of Nazareth. Do you believe in him? That surprising glory that comes in so many unexpected ways we can't control. Perhaps even it's coming this morning. That transforming glory. Do you know people who've been transformed? I'm sure you do. If you're not a Christian, I'm sure you've seen people whose lives have been utterly changed. They're different people now. Some of us radically different. What made the difference? Well, Jesus Christ made the difference. That enriching glory. I mean, are these people happy people? Do they come to you and say, I really regret the day I believed in Jesus. I really wish I hadn't become a Christian. Do they say that to you? No. They're joyful people, happy people. Their lives have been enriched. And are you willing to meet the demands that Jesus makes in order to see his glory? Are you willing to believe him and obey him even when that looks really difficult? Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you need to see that glory for the first time. Perhaps for others we we need to have our eyes opened to see it again but much more deeply than we ever did before. Well, in this story here we have Jesus standing amongst ordinary people on an ordinary occasion and in his love and mercy doing a miracle that meets all of their needs. One final question. Can you write your name this morning into the last phrase in verse 11? And John and Mary and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel And Raymond, and Alita, and Jackie, and Eden, and you, and you, and you, put their faith in him. I do hope you can. Let's pray. O Lord our God, you constantly take us by surprise. The way your son was born, his mother, his birthplace, his early life, all astonishing. His strange and terrible death, so unexpected. But here, in the first of his signs, in an obscure place to ordinary people in everyday circumstances he filled it with glory and meaning and so Lord we are ordinary people in an ordinary building listening to an ordinary preacher and living ordinary lives And this morning you've shown us that it's in situations like ours today that it pleases you to reveal your glory. And so we pray you will do for each one of us today so that we may more completely put our faith in Jesus. Amen.